I don't recommend baby aspirin. The reason for that is that if you look around that sort of really early phase of implantation, there's a bit of evidence to say it might be the opposite of benefit. That was our guest today, Dr. Ingrid Gran, talking about why miscarriage happens, as well as research that is taking place in terms of investigations into recurrent miscarriage. So I know you're going to find this really interesting. This is the last episode in the miscarriage series on the Fertility Podcast, which we know has been really beneficial to you. Thank you so much for your feedback. Of course, you can still leave a review in Apple Podcasts. Five stars always welcome. And one other thing that I'll ask you to do is join my closed Facebook group called Talk Fertility. It's facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Talk Fertility because in a couple of weeks, if you're listening in real time, we're at the start of June 2020. By the end of June, in that Facebook group, I'm launching a really exciting challenge, but you've got to be in the group to take part. So a little task to do next time you're on Facebook. Before we hear our conversation with Ingrid, we've come through this period of the clinics being closed and now they're reopening. And we've talked before about during lockdown, being able to empower yourself whilst at home. And one of the things that we were really keen to talk about was home testing. And it's still worth people thinking about it in the weight of the clinics reopening, isn't it? Definitely, because there's still going to be a bit of a backlog. So couples can get their tests done now to find that information out which will be really helpful but not only that we're also talking about couples that haven't even reached the stage of fertility clinics yet and who really want to get empowered and find out more about their fertility and that's where home testing comes into its own they can get that information done now exactly whether you're just starting to try or you want to know why it's not happening yet medichex who are sponsoring the podcast has a range of simple home blood tests developed with our very own kate davis to help you so visit medichex.com to find out more this series from the fertility podcast is talking about miscarriage with staggering numbers of people affected daily by this. There's still a silence around it, feelings of shame. Along with the grief, there is the physical impact of loss, and we wanted to explore this further over the coming weeks, with a number of conversations from experts, as well as people who have been through it. Unfortunately, there are so many reasons why miscarriage happens. Whether it be genetic or placenta problems, infection or long-term health conditions you may suffer from, or sometimes, we just don't know. We hope that by talking about it in this way, you will know that there is support and guidance available for you from groups, experts and organisations. To find out more about the support available, visit thefertilitypodcast.com forward slash miscarriage, where there will be listings to the range of organisations available, as well as all of these episodes. So I'm now going to welcome Dr. Ingrid Gran, who is a senior research fellow in reproductive medicine and a consultant gynaecologist at the John Radcliffe in Oxford, somewhere that Kate used to work as well. And the pair have just been reminiscing, haven't you? Kate's been peering out the window of Ingrid's office. Feeling nostalgic. Discussing old <laughs> colleagues. Ingrid, welcome to the podcast. It's really lovely to have you Thank here. Thank you. So we are currently sharing our miscarriage series and we've talked about the psychological impact of miscarriage and we've also heard patient stories and we wanted to talk about the issue itself. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it's one of the most common questions I get asked, Ingrid, and I'm sure you do in every day of your life as well, is that why do miscarriage happen? Because we know there's so many different reasons, um, but it's really frustrating for women not to be able to have an answer. 
And I know that you're doing an awful lot of research at the moment into this. So we're just really interested to find out a bit more about that. And also for your, to, to give your, your opinion on why the majority of miscarriages might occur. So, so we know increasingly more about why miscarriages might happen, but I think it's really hard for the patient in front of you to say, in very many cases, this is the reason this miscarriage happened. Um, the thing we know is the most common cause of miscarriage is that the pregnancy itself, that the pregnancy tissue doesn't have the right genetics. So each of our cells in our body is made up of 23 pairs of chromosomes that carry the genetic material um, for all of our cells. And we get 23 of those from an egg and 23 of those from a sperm. And what we know in those very early stages of cell division as the eggs fertilized, commonly you get genetic mistakes that mean that a pregnancy just can't develop normally. So we hear about pregnancies um, with Down syndrome where you get an extra chromosome 21 and lots of those pregnancies do con continue. But the vast majority of cases when uh, it's another chromosome, the pregnancy just can't go beyond those first few weeks. And if you look at pregnancy tissue from miscarriage, particularly in sporadic miscarriage, and that I mean by a first miscarriage, for example, at least in half of those cases, you'll find that there's a chromosome problem that meant that this baby could never make it to a healthy term pregnancy. But there's a whole load of other stuff in there, so it's not just that. Um, we know that uh, the issue around chromosomes is really quite heavily related to female age. Um, and that's the bit that sadly none of us can change. But we know that as you get older, miscarriages much, much more common. And I think that's one thing that's really, really hard for women to face, that there's a thing that you can't necessarily do something about. Um, we know that if you're um, in your 20s, somewhere between 25, 29, you've got about a one in 10 chance of any individual pregnancy resulting in a miscarriage. Um, but that changes really rapidly as you get older. So that by the time a, a woman's 45, it's actually about one in two pregnancies will end. Uh, 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 and, you know, that's something that I think is often not commonly out there as a fact, because if we all see the Cherie Blairs or the, you know, the famous people who have their babies much later in life. Um, and what, of course, for the most part, and I'm sure you've already discovered this in talking to people, is that people don't tell the stories um, uh, when it's not gone that way. So that's, that's a big part of it, um, but it's not the only part of it by, by any uh, sense of the word. There's, there's all sorts of other reasons why miscarriage may happen. Um, sometimes it can be other medical conditions may increase the risk of miscarriage. So if you had diabetes, for example, that wasn't controlled well, or thyroid problems that weren't controlled well, they can be associated with miscarriage. Um, we know that things like increasing weight seem to be associated with miscarriage. We don't quite know all the reasons why. Um, we've just done some really interesting genetic work that's just um, awaiting publication at the moment, um, looking at screening of thousands and thousands of women who've had miscarriage to try and understand what genetic factors may be behind it. And clearly that there are some genetic factors um, that may predispose some individuals to miscarriage and not others. 
Um, so there's all sorts of factors. And then often when we're talking about miscarriage research, we describe this big black box, which is the lining of the womb or the endometrium, the bit that's really hard to see um, when uh, the, a pregnancy loss occurs. What are the factors in that lining of the womb that, that may be associated with my, why a miscarriage happened? And it may be hormonal. There's some evidence for immune factors that are related to miscarriage. And all of these things may be relevant for any individual pregnancy loss. Um, and some of them more relevant, I guess, to women who've had suffered multiple pregnancy losses. And, and then it seems that the causes are somewhat different from the causes when someone might have had one pregnancy loss, although clearly there's some overlap um, and absolutely age is a factor in all of those, uh, those women very frequently. I noticed that there wasn't any mention of male factor with what you were just saying. So no, it's, it's, there is clearly evidence of male factors. And again, age is the biggest factor, um, but it's not uh, quite to the same degree as female age. So um, we used to think that, that, that male factors weren't involved at all. There's increasing evidence that, that, that the age of a man does bear um, some influence on the chance of miscarriage, but not to such a greater degree. Um, certainly in recurrent pregnancy loss, uh, there's also evidence that um, DNA damage to the sperm may be associated with recurrent pregnancy loss. One of the really tricky things I always think in many of these um, investigations and research studies we all do is that we find stuff that's associated with pregnancy loss but not necessarily the thing that can therefore go on and treat it. And that's something that I think women find really frustrating. So you can say, yep, this, this might be in there. But um, in my view, we've got very few things that we've got good evidence for to say, do you know what, we treat you with this and it's going to make all the difference. Yeah, and I think that's obviously the, the frustration element, isn't it? I think it's really frustrating for women, yes. And... Um, uh, and that's where there's so much more research to do, I guess, you know, I think there is increasing evidence that immune factors are associated with recurrent pregnancy loss. You know, we know about things like the antiphospholipid syndrome, where women make uh, proteins or autoantibodies that seem to have an effect on how the placenta works. And in that specific case, we know that there's a treatment that, that may make a difference. But in very many of the other things that we are interested in, immune cells and the lining of the womb, for example, we really don't have the evidence to say that we've got a treatment that works. And I think that's so frustrating for patients and something that, you know, as a community of scientists and doctors are interested in improving outcomes for women, um, it, it, there's a, lot, a long way to go in terms of looking at what treatments may be effective. And did I see in relation to that that you're doing a study on natural killer cells in the endometrium? Yeah, so we're interested in a whole variety of uh, immune cells in the lining of the womb, actually. So we're doing a study at the moment called the PIP study, which is peri-implantation immune profiling. So we're looking at both blood cells and cells from the lining of the womb in that window of implantation. So the bit of the part of your menstrual cycle where an embryo would normally implant and we're looking at a really broad variety of cells, including natural killer cells, including something called T-regulatory cells we're really interested in, and, and B cells, and just trying to define whether there really is good evidence that what happens in that cycle in terms of the profile of your immune cells might affect whether your next pregnancy is going to result in a live birth or not. Because actually that's what matters for women. It's not whether my 
natural killer cells are a little bit different to yours. It's what can you do that's going to allow me to have a baby at the end of all this. Um, and that's the bit I think that's really important that we don't just sort of hold on to a change of your immune cells are a little bit different to mine, but actually is that really what's clinically going to make a difference? And is there a treatment that's actually going to make a difference? Because one of the things that we're always keen to talk about in the work that we do is helping people um, in kind of what they're doing next. And in terms of investigations, um, we know that there's this whole issue about when mm. miscarriages investigated, mm. the numbers around uh, the number of miscarriages that a, a woman has to have had mm. before there is investigation. We talked about the impact of that with Dr. Jessica Farron at the mm. start of this. And I wonder if we can just talk about if there's somebody listening and they have experienced a miscarriage, the way that they can kind of have conversations in terms of how they move forward and what happens maybe next. You know, the question is, is there something I can do that's going to make my pregnancy successful next time. I think it's a really tricky one because I also think it's so important that women don't walk away from these conversations thinking, ah, well, it was something I did last time that made it go wrong, because I don't think that's the fact. And, you know, as precisely as we've just talked about, the fact that most of the time these pregnancy losses are very much intrinsic to the pregnancy and, and, and not, the, not the woman. Um, nevertheless, perhaps there are some things some of us can do sometimes that may make a difference. So, you know, weight we know is associated with miscarriage but again it, for me it's really important I don't turn around to my patients and say aha that's why this happened because it isn't you know but in terms of taking control of your own you know destiny to taking control of what happens next for some patients that's really important to know there may be something they can go away and do in terms of looking at investigations um I, I think that certainly internationally we're moving to a place where thinking about investigations after two miscarriages for some women not for all may be really appropriate um you know there is no magic feature about three miscarriages in itself um and if it's about what matters to women uh going into a pregnancy with at least a little bit of confidence that it isn't the things that are treatable actually might be really important um, and certainly in our clinic, we're trying to move towards access to all women who've had two miscarriages at least so that we can go on and, and, and investigate them if they wish to. I think sometimes one of the things we try and do if, if women are keen to do so after a miscarriage is to look at the chromosomes of the pregnancy because I think if it is abnormal, it, it often gives people confidence again that this was nothing you did, there was nothing you could have changed. Often I find women find that helpful um but i don't think there's a one size fits all for this you know some of the women that come through our clinic want to go away try again don't don't want us to do things uh, investigations and for other women um that absolutely terrified of going through a pregnancy again without us being at least able to ensure and assure them that we're not going to be missing something that's at least potentially treatable can you Talk us through kind of when it comes to investigating a miscarriage, exactly what you investigate. Um, so apart from you talked about chromosome, but other than the chromosome side. Again, different clinics may do things slightly differently. Um, and the evidence for very many tests, if I'm honest with you, is pretty poor. Um, if you've had 
a number of miscarriages in the past. Perhaps the most helpful test is this thing called a test for the antiphospholipid syndrome, which is a blood test that looks for three different parameters, that looks for antibodies in the blood. Uh, and if they are positive, what we ask women to do is to have a second test 12 weeks later. And if they remain positive, then you can make that diagnosis. There are other blood tests. And again, different clinics do slightly different things. We also look for inherited tendencies to have predisposition to blood clots. So that's called a thrombophilia screen. We do it in the context of, of a trial because we're taking part in a big trial called ALIVE2. Uh, we don't know that treating those um, blood clotting inherited tendencies makes any difference at the moment. So we're taking part in a study where we're trying to identify uh, if treating with a blood thinning drug is of benefit or not. So we would do that test as well. We also look at thyroid function because we talked earlier, if you've got frankly abnormal thyroid function, then that, that does matter. We like to look at the shape of the womb. Again, there is some evidence that if you've got something called a uterine septum, which is a, essentially a divider um, in, in the womb, that that is associated with miscarriage. Um, it isn't that clear whether treating it makes a difference, but I think women are really keen to know as much information as possible. And then depending on the patient, some patients, we, we do test the chromosomes from both the, the female and male partner, but often we've tested the pregnancy loss tissue and that gives us very similar information. So it does depend on the individual. So they're the, the main tests that we do in the clinical context and then lots of the other things we do we, we do very much in a, in a research context try to understand more with regards to kind of things that women can do it's just come to me as we've been talking there to help improve or to reduce their risk because again that's a question i get asked all the time and mm. often there's nothing that you can do but what's your thoughts because again i get asked a lot about this mm. is what's your thoughts on baby aspirin so i don't recommend baby aspirin the reason for that is that if you look around that sort of really early phase of implantation there's a bit of evidence to say it might be the opposite of benefit and so there's really good evidence that that later on from about 12 weeks of pregnancy it probably reduces the risk of blood pressure associated with pregnancy so preeclampsia and i think it came back um, that people were suggesting baby aspirin because of the antiphospholipid syndrome where we know it, it is of benefit. And it's a really difficult one, I find, as a doctor, <laughs> that, in a sense, offering someone something makes me feel better as a doctor, makes me think I'm, I'm doing something, um, and, and might make my patient feel better that she thinks I'm doing something as well. But, but I really feel strongly, particularly with miscarriage, where there is a lot of prescribing of very expensive drugs to patients with very little known therapeutic benefit, I think real honesty is really important in a doctor-patient relationship. And so I am really keen not to prescribe things for which we don't have good evidence. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. So Ingrid, if we're trying to say to anybody who might be coming to terms with a loss, where they can get more support if they're not for example going through fertility treatments and have access to consultants maybe this is something that was unexpected and it's happened or they've been trying and it's happened and they've suddenly had the loss but they're maybe feeling that there hasn't been the follow-up um, in terms of the support that they feel they need where would you advise them to 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 look for 
to get some... So it, it does matter, I guess, where, you, where your hospital is, but I think that a lot of early pregnancy units now are, are staffed by really knowledgeable excellent staff often you know it's certainly in my clinic i've got fantastic advanced nurse practitioners and clinical nurse specialists who who know exactly what the issues are and are very very good at talking to, to women uh, and who care massively about pregnancy loss and i think that's often a first port of call um i think that lots of gps can be really helpful with this and lots of hospitals will see women certainly after two pregnancy losses I think networks such as the Miscarriage Association are invaluable for lots of women um, and talking to other women on online forums can be really helpful. Uh, and actually, I, the other thing I think, um, as someone who's had three miscarriages herself, is talking to other people because it's just, you know, one in four women has a miscarriage in her reproductive lifetime. Uh, and so your mum, your sister, your friends, it will have happened to them. And I think there's something around... Um, there's nothing shameful about miscarriage. You know, it's something that we need to talk about. And the more we talk about it, the more we realise how common it is and the more you can start to understand where your feelings are coming from um, and actually how similar it is to other people who you care about. And patient after patient after patient of mine says, God, I just never realised it had happened till, you know, to so-and-so and so-and-so and until I w was brave enough to talk about it. Um, and I think sort of demystifying miscarriage is, is a really helpful thing to do. You may or may not have heard some of the sort of discussion about progesterone again. Oh, now tell me, tell me. It's a difficult one, the progesterone story, because the big trial, you know, the promised trial looked at progesterone in women who'd had three pregnancy losses, randomly allocated to progesterone or, or a, a dummy drug, a placebo, and it didn't show benefit. And then this big study, the PRISM study, that, that ran throughout the UK, um, published again. That was a study that was looking at women who were bleeding in early pregnancy. And uh, again, randomly allocated them progesterone or, no, or, or a placebo. And again, overall in that massive group of patients didn't show a benefit. But um, uh, the, the research group that undertook that have kind of synthesized all of that data and their current data really is suggesting that there may be a subgroup of women for whom it's beneficial. Um, I think the jury's still out. My view of progesterone is that um, I think there is increasing evidence that in women with multiple miscarriages, four miscarriages or more, that there may be some evidence of benefit. Um, and women who are bleeding in early pregnancy, you've had several miscarriages, um, that isn't literature that's currently been reviewed or published by NICE, by the National Institute of Healthcare Excellence. And so it's not within the current guidelines, but it, 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 I think it will probably move towards that over the coming years. And so for me at the moment, I pretty much give all my patients the evidence as I see it. And some women, again, don't want to take extra hormones. And some women will say, I absolutely do. And we do know it's a safe and a relatively cheap drug, but more most importantly, a safe drug in pregnancy. So I think it's a conversation we need to start having to pay, having with patients. Yeah, good to know about that. That's really interesting. Ingrid, thank you so much for explaining all of that. Hopefully we've given people more to think about, uh, more awareness of where they can get support from and um, hopefully explained maybe some of the unanswered questions that people have. So thank you so much. Good to talk to you both. Thank you very much. 
We know there's probably going to be a lot of information here that has got you thinking, so be sure to visit thefertilitypodcast.com forward slash miscarriage, where we will be listing links to all the different organisations we're mentioning, as well as the different episodes within this series. And of course, you can follow us online. I'm at Fertility Poddy. And I'm at Your Fertility Journey. And just remember, we're here. You're so not alone. I mentioned at the start my closed Facebook group to give you that again where I'm going to be launching a challenge in a couple of weeks that's going to be such a great help for you. Just visit facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash talk fertility. I'll see you there.